Today, we're in the book of Jonah, just like last week we were in the book of Jonah, but today we're in chapter 2. Now, the book of Jonah is interesting because everybody knows the story. Even if this is your first time ever to church, you know the story of Jonah, at least the story of the first two chapters of Jonah. Jonah rebels against God, flees the Lord, is thrown into the water, swallowed by a great fish, spit back up in three days. That's the story of Jonah. Now, that's not really the story of Jonah. That's just the introduction to the story of Jonah. But that's the part everybody knows. And so last week, Jonah chapter 1, we looked at how Jonah rebelled against the Lord and ran the other direction, and we saw what happened. In fact, we really learned two things last week. First, we learned, I am Jonah. We are Jonah, and we rebel against the Lord. But then we also learned that Jesus is Jonah. And that's not our idea, it's, the, it's, it's something that Jesus said. Matthew chapter 12, he said, Jonah is a sign, he's a picture of what I've come to do. And so we learned how we are Jonah, we learned how Jesus is Jonah, and when we come to Jonah chapter 2, we will, we will see the same things. So let's start reading. I really want to start with the last verse of chapter 1, because if you weren't here last week, that last verse will catch you up. The Bible says, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, we usually call this the story of Jonah and the whale, but have you noticed as we've gone through this, there's really no reference to a whale. It says a fish. Maybe the fish was a whale. We don't, we don't know. Perhaps the word is not quite that precise, but it says he was swallowed by a great fish. Now, Jonah chapter 2, verse 1 begins, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Now, I want you to get this in your mind. This would have been an awful experience. Jonah's in the belly of a fish. You ever been in the belly of the fish? If we had somebody, we'd get a testimony, but I, I, I looked up the body temperature of a whale this week. You know, this is just what preachers do when we have extra time. And, uh, if you were to stick a thermometer in the mouth of a whale, it would be 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so uh, we have to assume that uh, Jonah, for three days and three nights, it was 100 degrees. Uh, I imagine that the smell was pretty bad. Uh, he, was, uh, he was in the gastric juices that were washing over him, bleaching him white. This would have been a miserable experience. But it says in the middle of this, he prayed. Now, the, the question that people ask ab about this prayer is, is this really what he prayed? Did he really pray? Because when we read the prayer in a moment, you're going to notice it's, a, it's an eloquent prayer. How was Jonah able to be so eloquent in the belly of the fish? And did he have a pen and paper to write it down while he was there? Well, I think the best way to understand this is it is a summary of some of the things that Jonah prayed. I mean, put yourself in Jonah's shoes, or I don't know if he had on shoes or not, but imagine that you were in the fish. Listen, I'm sure Jonah prayed all kinds of things for three days and three nights. I, I imagine he never stopped praying. I would pray, you would pray, right? And so later on, uh, when the story is over, Jonah records sort of a summary of what happened, and that's what we have here in chapter two, uh, eight verses, the prayer, eight verses long. So look at verse two. He says, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I called out, cried out, rather, for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. Now, what's interesting here is that 
We saw in chapter one that when Jonah got the word from the Lord, there is no record that he ever prayed. When Jonah went down to Joppa, there's no record that he prayed. When Jonah was at the ticket office, buying a ticket on a boat going in the opposite direction, it it doesn't mention that he prayed. When Jonah got on the boat, he didn't pray. When Jonah went into into the lower areas of the boat, he didn't pray. When the storm came around the boat, he didn't pray. When the men woke him up and took him to to the deck and were questioning him, he didn't pray. He didn't pray until he was in the belly of the fish. Now that tells me that some of us are so hard-headed that the only time we'll ever reach out to the Lord is when our life falls apart. And when I read that, my prayer is, Lord, don't let that be me and don't let that, don't let that be you. So verse three, he says, you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas and the current overcame me and your breakers and your billows swept over me. Uh, One interesting thing there is to note who threw Jonah into the sea. Well, he says here that God did. God threw me in the sea. But if you remember from chapter 1, it was the sailors that threw him in the sea. So which is it? Was it the sailors or was it God? Well, Jonah understands at this point that at the end of the day, God's sovereign. At the end of the day, God's in charge. At the end of the day, nothing happens that God does not allow to happen. So in a real sense, God is the one who threw him in the sea. Verse four, but I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. Does that sound like a prayer you've heard before? Maybe in the New Testament, maybe like the prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross. It goes on in verse five, the water engulfed me up to the neck, the watery depths overcame me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains, The earth's gates shut behind me forever, and then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. That echoes what Jesus said on the cross and what he experienced. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus died and was in the, was in the pit of the earth, so to speak, in the tomb for three days. And then, and then he was resurrected. So we, we learned last week that because Jesus said it was so, we can see something of Jesus when we look to, when we look to Jonah. We can see some connections there. Jesus said we would find those connections. So we looked at a number of those last week. Let me just stop here and share a few more. I think these are interesting. Jonah was cast into the sea for three days, right, to the, into the sea and into the, into the fish for three days. Jonah was cast into the sea for his sins. Jesus was cast into the grave. He died, put in the grave. Jesus was cast into the grave for our sins. So you see some similarities by contrast. Everything Jonah did was wrong, right? From beginning to end, Jonah, everything he did was wrong. Everything Jesus did was right. Jonah ran from God. Jesus ran to God. Jonah cried out for vengeance on his enemies. God, destroy these Ninevites. Jesus asked for forgiveness for his enemies. Uh, Jonah's life was all about self-protection. How could he protect himself? Jesus' life was all about self-sacrifice. Both prayed something similar. Jonah repents, we'll see a little later here in chapter two, Jonah repents for himself, Jesus repented, so to speak, 
for us, for our sins. Lived a perfect life for us. Died a, a sacrificial death for us. And so even in the contrast between Jonah and Jesus, you, 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 see, the, you see the connection. Now, here's why this is important. The kindness of God, the Bible says in Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. Now, it's easy to, to stop here, and, and this wouldn't be a wrong thing to do. It's easy to stop here and say, listen, church, if you don't live right, if you don't straighten up, if you don't quit rebelling against the things of God, then God's going to bring a great fish into your life out of the blue. He's going to swallow you up. Your life will fall apart. Your family, your finances, your job, it'll be miserable. You better ship up, ship right, whatever the word is. And, and so that would be easy to preach. And as you can tell, I like preaching like that. But, and that's true. I, I don't want to say that that's not true. And, and maybe that's, that's what you need to hear this morning. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the discipline of the Lord for those that aren't following. His children that aren't following close to him. But, but I think there's something even more than that to see here. If you think about I am Jonah and Jonah's in the belly of the fish and I fear that if I don't live right, I will be in the belly of the fish then that'll cause me, would cause you to, to straighten up for a little while, right? But if you'll see Jonah in the belly of the fish as Jesus in the grave, having given his life for us, having died for us and for the forgiveness of our sin, then that doesn't just scare me straight for a week. That brings real repentance in my life because it's the kindness and the love of God that brings the real change, that brings the real uh, repentance to, to, to life. Well, let's, let's continue on. Uh, verse 7, he says, As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. So this is, sounds like the end, right? He says, My life is fading away. I'm just about gone, my last plea, my last cry. But then verse 8. Verse 8 is the middle verse in this, uh, in this book. I told you last week, 47 verses. And so half of them before verse 8, half of them after verse 8. I think 24 before, 23 after, something like that. This is the middle verse. And it is the middle verse really in the life of Jonah. Because he's headed in the wrong direction. He's prayed a lot of stuff. He's cried out for help. But at this point, he has not confessed any sins. You go back and look closely at the first part of this prayer. He's just asking for help. He's not confessing. He's not repenting. But he comes to the end. And then verse 8. Verse 8 is the hinge point in his life. Verse 8 is when everything changes. It's the middle of the, middle of the book. It, in a sense, was the middle of his life. And verse 8, listen church, can be the hinge point for us. It can be the point when we understand and embrace the truth of this verse. It can be where our lives change. So look at verse 8. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Now we'll spend a long time on that, a little bit of time on that in just a moment. But that's the verse. That's where everything changed for Jonah. But let's finish the prayer, verse 9, which it's going to be very different than verse 7. Why? Because things have changed. From verse 8 forward, things are different. So look at verse 9. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You, you, does it sound different? 
Well, let's just, we're here for this. Let's take a little time. Let's read verse seven again, and then we'll read verse nine. And I want you to see, it sounds like an entirely different person. Verse seven, as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in the holy temple. It's over. And then verse nine, but as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, it says. I will fulfill what I have vowed because salvation, my rescue is of the Lord. And then verse 10, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So let's, let's take a few minutes and just focus on that verse eight. I, I think it's the most important verse in the first half uh, of the book of Jonah. As we said in the first few verses of this prayer, there's no, there's no confession, there's no, uh, no realization of, uh, of his wrong uh, actions. He doesn't talk about rebelling. All he's saying is, uh, it's hard and, and please rescue me. And I'm afraid that a lot of times that's what my prayers sound like. Lord, it's hard, rescue me. Lord, it's hard, rescue me. But finally in verse eight, for the first time, he says what's wrong. He states a truth. He says again, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Let's look at the first part of that. Those who cherish worthless idols. I looked this up in some other Bible versions to see if there was you know, a, a version that, that, that helped us even better understand it. And I, I love what the NIV says here. It says, clinging to worthless idols. You know, an idol is anything that takes the place of God in our lives. An idol could be something good or something bad, but if it has the place in your life that God should have in your life, it is an idol and it is a sin. And so he says here that to cling to an idol, to cherish an idol, that's, that's where Jonah's life went wrong. And that's where, that's where our rebellion will begin. We call that idolatry. Idolatry, I've got a definition here, is any time we value something more than we value God. If there's something in your life more valuable than God, from your perspective, that's idolatry. Idolatry is any time we fear losing something more than we fear losing God. Idolatry is any time we gain peace, comfort, or joy from something more than we gain peace, comfort, and joy from God. Idolatry is when we strive for something more than we strive for the Lord. Idolatry is any time that we are esteemed by something. That means that we have been, that we're made to feel, feel good about something, that we are comforted by something more than we are esteemed by having a relationship with God. That is idolatry. So he says, if you cherish some, some, something in your life that has taken the place of God, if you cling to it, that's idolatry. And then the second part of this verse, it says, abandon their faithful love. He's talking about abandoning the love of God. If you grab hold of the idol, you will lose the Lord. Both, you can't grab hold of both. I looked, um, I looked this up, as I said, in some other Bible versions. The NIV says at the end, you turn away from God's love. In the ESV, it says you forsake the hope of steadfast love. If we grab hold of the idol, we will lose the Lord. That's what happened with Jonah. He, he, he embraced this idol. We'll, I'll tell you what the idol was in a moment. And, and he lost the Lord. And so he comes to verse 8 and he says, that's the problem. I've learned my lesson. If you cherish worthless idols, 
you'll be separated from the, from the Lord. It, it, you know, it's, it's interesting, some of the things you hear in churches after, you know, a few years. And, and often, not often, but sometimes you'll hear people get the words adultery and idolatry mixed up. And, and I can understand that. They, they sound a lot the same, adultery and idolatry. But really they're similar in ways more than just how they sound. Adultery is when you embrace a rival to your spouse. Adultery would be if I put a woman in the place in my life that only belongs to my wife, that's adultery. Idolatry is when we embrace a rival to God. If I take something, good or bad, a person, a hobby, a habit, a, a sin, a rebellion, a desire, and, and I put it in the place that belongs to God, that's, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. Uh, so in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, he finally, he finally admits it. He, he finally, it's the hinge point because he's confessing that if you cherish this idol, I'll be separated from the Lord. Now, what was, what was Jonah's idol? You know, in some ways, I don't even want to tell you uh, because that's really not the point. And, and I don't want to let somebody off the hook. If, if your idol is different from this, the point is, if you cherish an idol, any idol, it'll pull you away from the Lord. But, but I'll tell you what his idol was. He hated the Ninevites. I mean, he hated them. And, and, and the Lord said, go and preach to the Ninevites. And, and he knew, if I go preach to the Ninevites, they'll probably repent. And God, crazy God, will probably be merciful to them. I hate the Ninevites. I'm not going to be a part of that. No. And he hated the Ninevites so much that it became an idol to him. You know, sometimes we can, we can hate people and it can be an idol. We can hate old people or hate young people or hate black people or hate white people or hate Republicans or hate Democrats or hate immigrants or hate Chinese people. Or... But sometimes our hatred for a group of people is so precious to us, we could never give that up. Because that's who we are. Well, that was Jonah's problem and, and his hatred for the Ninevites. Now, he could have given you a whole list of reasons why he hated them. And he probably would have been right in all those reasons. But his hatred for them became, became an idol in his life. So look at how it worked in his life. Uh, he was a man of God. I want you to notice this. Jonah was a man of God. He was a prophet. He was obedient. He was a a pious man. He was bold. We know that because he was a prophet of God. And we can turn over to the book of Second Kings and we can say he was a successful, we can see that he was a successful prophet of God. Jonah obeyed the Lord all the way up to a line. And there his obedience stopped. You understand? Jonah was, was perhaps obedient to the Lord in 95% of his life, but there was one little part of his life. There was one little thing that he wouldn't let go of, that he held on to. And Lord, I'll be, I'll be faithful in so many things. I'll stand against Jeroboam, the king. I will preach the good news. I will be a prophet of the Lord, but I'm not sacrificing this. Imagine, I thought about doing this, having a big white poster board up here. Just a big white board. And that big white board, just, just white board represents all the areas of your life. And then I was going to just draw a circle on it like about that size. 
And I was going to say, you know, for so many of us, this whiteboard, all of this represents our obedience to God. We're obedient to come to church. We're obedient to read our Bibles. We're obedient. We're obedient. We're obedient. But there's one little circle in our lives. And listen, Lord, you stay out of that circle. Because that's mine. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. And that's, that's the story of, of Jonah's life. That's how idolatry looks in our lives. If I will go to church and read my Bible and be kind to my neighbor and give my money, but I will not stop having sex outside of marriage. That's idolatry. If I will be a good Christian and do all those things, but I will not let God dictate the character of the people I date, that's idolatry. If I'll go to church and read my Bible and do those things, but I will not accept someone of a different race, that's idolatry. If I'll do those things yet not give sacrificially, then that's idolatry. If I'll do all of those things, but I refuse to share Christ with some family member, that's idolatry. If I'll do all of those things, but I will not end a relationship that I know is ungodly, that's idolatry. If I do those things, but I draw the line at a mission trip, I won't go on a mission trip, that's idolatry. If I do all of those things, but I will not give up my career dreams and my career goals to serve the Lord, that's idolatry. What is it that you will do everything up to a line? That line introduces our idolatry. An idol is anything so central, so essential to life, to your happiness, to your peace, to your esteem, that you cannot imagine living happily without it. I know this is a sensitive subject, but, but oftentimes when you hear that somebody has committed suicide, not every time, but often, the real issue is the issue of idolatry. I um, got a call this week, uh, had to deal with a uh, little bit of a situation about a, a minister that had committed suicide, pastor, successful pastor, large church. And so somebody called me connected to that and in, in a way, and, and the, the story is that there was something in his life that really was more precious to him than, than God. And so instead of losing that, well, he, he ended his life. He couldn't imagine living without that, the respect and love of people and the admiration, and, and it, uh, it destroyed him. Idolatry is anything we won't give up. An idol is something that's hard to give up even for the Lord. It's good to be passionate about your career. But if you won't give it up to serve the Lord and still be happy, then your career becomes idolatry. It's fine to work hard, to save, to invest money for the future. But if you won't sacrifice it for the Lord, that money becomes idolatry. It's good to have convictions and stand uh, in, in strong places because this is what you believe. But if you're not willing to change, if the Lord shows you you're wrong, then that's idolatry. It's good to achieve great things in school and work and sports and art. But if you have to have those things to be happy and God is not enough, then that's idolatry. I imagine you've heard the story of the monkey trappers. It's a favorite preacher story. I may have even shared it with you before. I'm told it's true that in, in Africa, if they're trying to catch monkeys, uh, they take a, a gourd or a coconut or something and they, and they fasten it to a tree and they drill a, a small hole in that, just 
just large enough for one of those little monkeys to, to, to get his hand through that hole. And then they put inside that gourd or whatever it is, they put a nut or something that the, that, that the monkey would be attracted to. And so these curious monkeys, they find the gourd, they find the hole, and they find the nut. And so they get their hands in there and they grab hold of that nut. The problem is when they grab hold of that nut, they can't pull their hands out. And, and listen, this is hard to imagine. Uh, but, but you know, monkeys aren't the smartest people in the world and neither are we. <laughs> okay. And, and so those monkeys, I'm told that they will not let go of that nut no matter what that they'll spend all day trying to get free and they will never let go of that nut. And, and even when the trappers come, they will not let go of that nut until they are, they are captured. Well, whatever that nut is for you, I mean, whatever we reach out and we grab hold of, and listen, I'll serve you, I will go to church, I'll read my Bible, I'll do all these things, but that one thing, I will not let go of that. That is idolatry. And we see in Jonah 2.8 that finally, it's finally, it's time. And Jonah, Jonah says, okay, this is idolatry and I give it up because it's separating me from the Lord. Now, here's the sad thing about that. That rarely happens. Idols are rarely acknowledged and they are almost never sacrificed. Most people hold on to the nut until it's too late. But Jonah, that's one of the reasons why this is such an extraordinary story. He finally confesses. He sacrifices his idol of pride and he is saved. Now here's what I want to do. Just in the few minutes I have left, I just want to show you, because it's such a rare thing, I just want to show you this hinge point in some other lives, lives of some other Bible characters that you know of, historical figures in the Bible. I want to show you a hinge point in their lives. I want you to see how they gave up their idol for the Lord. Now, all of these stories are a little different, and, and that's by design, because uh, one story will speak to one person, and one story perhaps will speak to another person, but let me show you what this rare event looks like, because hardly anybody ever gives up an idol. Let me show you what it looks like. We'll start with Job. Job's pivot point was Job 42, 4 through 6. And I made, if you're, if you're a fill-in-the-blank person, I made the scripture, the fill-in-the-blank, because I wanted you to go home and be able to find this passage. Job, do you know the story of Job? Job was a man, a good man. The Bible says he was blameless. But Job lost everything. He lost his health. He lost his family. He lost his, uh, his treasure, his wealth. He lost everything. And the book of Job in our Bible is just this long conversation between Job and uh, some of his friends who gave him some pretty bad advice and between Job and the Lord. But Job's, Job's idol was his, was his pride. Job believed that he was the one success, uh, responsible for his success, that he was the one who had, who had done so well in life, and, and, and it was him. But, but you come to the end of the book of Jonah, and, and, and let me give it, I want us to take a little bit of a running start. I'm, I'm going to look in Jonah chapter 42, but let me go all the way back to chapter, well, 
Let's, I'm going to start in 38. You don't have to turn there. You, uh, these will be simple. God speaks to Jonah, and God's going to say, listen, not Jonah, Job. God's going to say, Job, I got some questions for you. And then it's as a result of these questions that, that Job comes to this hinge point in his life. I'll read just some of the questions. Uh, Job 38, 3. God says, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. He says, I'm going to... I've got some questions. Job, you think you're hot stuff? Listen to these. The next verse. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job, exactly where were you standing when I created all of this? Verse 5. Who fixed its dimension? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Who supports its foundations or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you? He goes on. I can read a lot of these verses. I love this passage. Uh, verse 16. Have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked in the depths of the ocean? Job, you don't want to cross that ocean. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to the bottom of the ocean? You're so smart, Job. Tell us about what's the bottom of the ocean look like? Well, God goes on chapter after chapter. If you look over in chapter 40, verse 7, it says, uh, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Do you have an arm like God? Can, can you thunder with a voice like this? So there's much more to read, but, but let me go to the hinge point. So God asks these questions. How is Jonah gonna, uh, Job going to respond? All this, we're, we're 42 chapters into the book. Uh, Job is still holding on to his idol. What's he going to do? Well, 42.4 says this. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. So Job says back to God, you told me to listen, and you told me to answer. And I've listened and here's my answer. Verse five, I had heard reports about you. God, I've heard people talk about you before, but now my eyes have seen you. He says, now I understand. Now I understand how great you are, how mighty you are, how holy you are. And I understand who you are and I understand who I am. You are the great God. I am nothing. He humbles himself. Verse six, therefore I reject my words and I am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. That's where everything changes for him. His, his he had held on to his pride such that it had become an idol in his life. He was a self-made man. He was more successful because he was smarter and prettier and stronger and all those things. I, I am a great man. And he had pride in that. And he held on to that until this part, until he finally said, now God, I know. And I am like the dust of the ground. See, that's the, that's the hinge point. Some of us, our, our idol is pride. We think it's all about us. I'm better than most. I, I work harder than most. I'm smarter than most, prettier than most. I don't know, skinnier than most, whatever. And, and, and I have such pride in who I am. It's become an idol. Let, let me give you another example quickly. The prodigal's pivot was Luke 15, 17, and 18. You, you know the story of the prodigal son, and, and this is a parable, not a historical story, but Jesus tells the story of, of a father has two sons. One son rebels against the father, demands his inheritance, and leaves. He leaves, and, and, and he, he rebels against his father. 
his father, he had lived under the constraints of his father's rules. And he said, enough. I'm not living like this anymore. I want to enjoy life. I'm not going to do what my dad says do. I want to go out and I want to live my own life. Well, he went out and, and it went poorly and his life fell apart. And I mean, it absolutely fell apart. And what did he do when it fell apart? He still wouldn't go back. He, he tried even harder to live out from under the constraints of his father. But then Luke chapter 15, verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. He says, you know, my father's workers, they're living under the constraints of my father. I mean, they're following the rules and I'm not. And who's happy? Who's got food to eat? Who's healthy? Who's excited about tomorrow? It's not me living living however I want to live, it's those who are living under the constraints of my father. He recognizes that, that this desire to be free and to do his own thing and, and, and nobody, God not having any, any control over him, that was, that was an idol. And, and, and here, this is this hinge point in his life, this rare point. The next verse uh, says, uh, I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. He says, listen, I, I, I wanted to rebel. I didn't want to live under your constraint. The most important thing to me is I'll call my, my own shots in life. But now I have set that idol aside. Because what did Job say? If you cherish an idol, it'll separate you from God. He says, I'm setting this idol aside. I want to come back and live under the constraints of your house, your household. Let, let me give you one more. Peter's pivot point was John 6, 66 through 68. Just quickly, uh, uh, Jesus was preaching. He had a large crowd of people at this point in his ministry. And Jesus really started challenging them. He challenged what they believed. He, he, he called for action. He, he made them uncomfortable. And so they, they were leaving. They were grumbling. They were walking away. So I can't believe that preacher said that. You, you ever said that? You don't have to raise your hand. But they didn't like it. They didn't want to be challenged. They, they liked the good Bible stories and, and all of that and inspirational encouragement. But when Jesus started really challenging them, they, they didn't want any of it. So they left. So Jesus seeing all these people leave. Most of them left, in fact. And then Jesus turns to his disciples, to the 12, and he asks, okay, are you leaving too? I love this passage. Let me just read the story. John 6, 66. From that moment, many of the disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Not the 12, but the crowd. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? And in my imagination, there was just a long pause. Disciples, are you going to leave too? And, and like I said, the Bible doesn't say this, but here's how I imagine. They just all start looking at each other like, Ugh. I don't, I don't know, I don't know who's going to say something. Because they didn't, they didn't want to be made to feel uncomfortable. What Jesus had said, you can go back and read the message he preached. It was tough. It was hard. And so verse 68, Peter finally spoke and said, Lord, to whom would we go? Because you have the words, you, you have the eternal life. See, Peter, Peter said, our comfort and our, and our preferences. He said, I know that that's an idol for many and they're just walking away. But I realize, where would we go? 
because you're the only hope we have. And then, of course, the final one's the one we started with, Jonah. Jonah's pivot point was Jonah 2.8. Those, he, had, he said it, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. So the question this morning is, what is your idol? I've, uh, I've got a box. And uh, for those behind me, it's, a, it's just a box. Um, you know what's in this box? Well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. But I want you to think about what's in your box. What is that thing, that area, that person, that practice? And you'll follow God to the moon and back. Listen, you, you, you will give the Lord the shirt off your back. But you won't give him what's in the box. There's this one area of your life. You won't give him what's in the box. What's in your box? That is idolatry. You cherish it. You cling to it. And as Jonah said, this separates us from the Lord. So what's in your box? And when are you going to pivot? I've been a pastor a long time now and I don't see very many pivots. We're just all so prideful. We're just all so selfish. We just love our idols so much. I'll tell you a secret. This this seems like a message to you, but you're really just getting to watch me preach to myself today uh, because I'm, I'm selfish. I love my idols. But I want to be the Jonah. I want to be the Job, the Peter. I want to be the prodigal son. I want to be the person that recognizes that to hold on to my idol is to walk away from the love of God. And I want to pivot and run to God. Now, I, you know, I, I said earlier that this just would be a really good place to tell, to tell you if, you if you don't turn, then you're going to get swallowed by a fish this week. Your life's going to fall apart. And, and I'm not saying it, 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 it's not. But here's, here's my motivation. Not that Jonah suffered in the fish. I mean, that could be a motivation. I don't want to suffer. But my motivation is that Jesus suffered in a fish, except it wasn't a fish, right? My motivation is that what Jonah suffered because of his sins, Jesus suffered because of my sins. And I hear in that a call from the, from the Father in heaven that he loves me and I can run to him and I can surrender to him and his love can be my love. Now, whether you're lost and you need to come to Christ for the first time or whether you've been walking with Christ for a long time, except for that circle, except for that box, let's let today be a hinge point in our lives. Head bowed, eyes closed, let me pray. Father in heaven, I know it's rare. I know it's rare. But as I've studied this passage, as I've wrestled with this this week, I know that there's some, that there's some idols. There are some places in my life that I have marked off. Stay away, Lord, stay away. And I have justified it because in so many areas I've embraced you. In so many areas I've sacrificed, I've followed, I've been obedient. But stay out of this area. Father, I want to be that rare person that responds to the love of God. 
and opens my box and gives it to you. And I pray that all over this congregation, those at home, those on television, all over our congregation, that people will do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.